Thanks for tuning in to Voices in DevOps. If you enjoy this podcast, please check out John's reports and blogs on gigaohm.com, where he covers all things DevOps, data, and strategy, addressing many of the topics covered in Voices in DevOps. Hello, and welcome to this Voices in DevOps podcast, where I'm delighted to welcome Mark Ricks, who's got a, a, a thousand titles. And I'm going to stick with stick with one, which is uh, uh, actually I'm going to you've, you've got two titles, Mark. Sorry, this is turning into a bit of a waffly intro, but I love the fact that you're a safe fellow, which uh, I think all fellows should be safe. Um, so we can talk about that. Uh, and you're also a, a curriculum project manager for for Scaled Agile. So maybe you could just. Uh, kick off by telling us a bit about yourself, your background, and uh, and how you ended up being a SAFE fellow. Sure. Uh, thanks a lot, John. Great to be here. Um, well, one point of clarification, though, on the title, it's uh, it's a product manager, not that project manager. Did I say project? So I meant to say product. I'm so sorry. There you go. Yeah. So we're, we're in the era of moving from, from projects to products. So um, my title reflects that. Product management, yeah, safe, safe fellows. It's good to be safe. Um, and uh, right, so what, what brought me to this place? Uh, uh, probably a, a career-long series of really bizarre accidents. Um, <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, I I used to ride my bike around and 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 dream about what I was going to be when I grew up. It was never this. I never thought about being a DevOps guy or even a programmer or an engineer or you know, let alone a methodologist or an educator. I hope you would have more interesting things to think about when you're riding a bike around. Um, oh, yeah. Much bigger <laughs> dreams. Much bigger dreams. <laughs> I was the kid who wanted to be a rock star and a musician. So I think in a lot of ways, I'm just sort of a, um, I'm a dysfunctional musician or delusional musician moonlighting as a, as a technologist, uh, just waiting for my big break. There's, there's some great organizations. I'm over here in the UK. Um, it, it, it's a bit of a t-shirt theme, but it's uh, like a, a drinking group with a singing problem. Um, yeah, or a, right. uh, a drinking group with a running. It's always a drinking group with a something problem, with, with a running problem. Uh, so you're, 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 yeah, you're essentially the, the, the kind of uh, the, the rock star in, in, in the methodologist's body fighting to get out. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, it pays the bills. Um, but I think what what has really brought me to this point is um, a, uh, a a desire to constantly learn new things. So uh, if you look at my resume, I think you, you were perusing my LinkedIn profile, you probably see that it's very schizophrenic. Lots of kind of random responsibilities in there from, uh, you know, a, a degree in business starting out to programming and being a developer and then a development manager and an architect and uh, an architecture manager and a VP of engineering here and a VP of enterprise uh, or engineering excellence there, VP of architecture, large companies, small companies, startups, you know, unicorns, horses all over the place. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what has guided me through that, uh, that very choppy sea of responsibilities has been the desire to chase um, new learning opportunities. First of all, I'm a lifelong learner. I love uh, taking on new challenges and learning new things, um, but also looking for really interesting business problems to solve. So I've always thought, you know, how uh, how much more interesting could my job be than 
leveraging technology to solve really interesting business problems. So I think that's kind of led me through all of those different positions. And where I am now is um, working on more of a global scale, helping some of the world's largest organizations um, with their with their business problems and using technology to um, to leverage it. So you're right. You're right in that. Um... Uh, consulting and advising and, and mentoring and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I am now. So um, very, very hands-on, you know, engineering and, and sort of practical, um, you know, programming development career. My background is in engineering and, and programming, but I've always kind of taken the, uh, looked at that through a business lens. Um, so I've gotten away from the, the hands-on nitty gritty stuff. And now it's more about educating and training. So um, I really love what I'm doing now because it's um, it's at the intersection of my three primary passions, which are business, technology, and teaching. It's a really fun space to be in right now. I, I'm not going to like as my, my background. Um, I mean, I'm looking at uh, as you say your, your your LinkedIn profile, and it's it, it's not that different to mine about ten years ago before I became an analyst uh, uh, full on. Um, and I was running training courses in in you know, agile development and so on. And there's just something wonderful about, um, well, A, I know how complex projects can get. So the, the wonder of not actually being part of that complexity and being able to kind of help other organizations make things simpler was, was always great because you, you, you're always the solution, never the problem in, in that circumstance. And so it was feel good factor from that. But B, just the epiphany, the epiphanies that, that people go through if you're working through, okay, you know, there's only, let's apply the Pareto principle here. There's only, you know, what, what are the 20% of things that's really going to make a difference to, to this particular, whatever we're talking about, application or uh, architecture. And just seeing the, the, um, the veil fall from people's eyes as they go, oh, is that all? right? Okay, yeah, we can do that. And we can really cover that stuff. And it was just so wonderful to get people to that moment where they, they kind of feel passionate and not bogged down in their own weeds. Exactly. Wonderful Isn't it great thing. when you find that 20% that has 80% of the benefit? I, I, mean, I, I do confess that I've got a, um, I've got a principle called the, uh, uh, the guru's uh, uh, you add which I think I called it the guru's dilemma, but just general, essentially when you go into somewhere and everyone, you've got everyone on board um, and it all looks great. And then you leave and you think I've solved another thousand problems. I'm just the best person in the world. What you don't know is like three months later, it's kind of got almost a radiation decay curve and people are kind of gone. I'm not quite sure what he meant. And he, uh, uh, should we just, and six months later, if uh, I've seen organizations where I've been there six months after someone went in with all great ideas and, yeah. uh, and it's all kind of reverted to type and you've got to start all over again. I like so, that. There's, so there's a, there's a half-life to your brilliance. Solution. There's a half-life to, <laughs> to your, certainly to influence, certainly to that level of influence. Um, so you, you, you're speaking to a lot of organizations. I mean, training is kind of um, uh, classroom consulting as well, isn't it? So I'm sure you're kind of asking people what kinds of challenges they're uh, they're looking to solve, and and you've got all that engineering background again. So how would you, how would you characterize uh, if we're looking at um, enterprises, big companies, um, and I'm thinking across the gamut of uh, DevOps, of Agile, of just innovating. Uh, I call it software-based innovation at scale because I don't like those terms; they're a bit too jargony. Um, mm. but, but driving that innovation and, and scaling that innovation using software what's what are people struggling with would you say how would you characterize that 
How much time do we have, John? Uh, uh, we, we, we can always do another one. We can always do another one. How would you explain uh, it to your mother uh, in, the, in the words of a Philadelphia story? Oh, wow. You know, I actually think I've done this. or I've, I, keep, I think I attempt to do this at the, the Thanksgiving dinner table every yeah. year, explain to the family what it is I actually do. But it keeps changing. So it, uh, Yeah, and can I say for the, for the record, my mum is – ah, so um, I, I don't want to derail this, but we, I was out with a walk for my mum with my mum uh, uh, about six months ago. And she said, uh, yeah, yeah, I used to do programming. And I was like, what? Literally 30 years, I have not known this, that uh, when she was working in clinical trials and uh, there was data coming out of that stuff and there was some code uh, that enabled stuff to happen. And she said, yeah, I used to, I used to, I ended up writing reports and uh, uh, whatever the language was uh, back then, it was, um, something on a pericom terminal uh but literally my mum was programming wow that's what i ever did uh, okay never again so, will i will i doubt her technical prowess do carry so you on. know where you get it it's baked into your <laughs> dna <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly so uh so the the question was something along the lines of uh, how, how to characterize the problem what, what challenges are folks facing mm-hmm. out there right um well, i think uh, i i always uh I always approach the problem first at a macro scale. So, so across the you know broad swath of enterprises across the globe, regardless of industry vertical, regardless of geography, regardless of um, company size, I think uh, companies everywhere are facing a really big challenge, almost an existential crisis, to change, to move forward, to innovate, to transform into very agile, very adaptive organizations. Uh, so that they can compete with the really dominant players. Um, you know, at Scaled Agile, uh, we've adopted this uh, this mindset of business agility in our in our latest framework release, version 5.0, is really built around the idea of delivering um, business agility to enterprises. So really, not just not just building agility and um, adaptability into the IT organization, but doing that so that we can have uh, an influence on the agility of the business, the ability for the business to compete in the digital age. So as companies go digital, as the world goes digital, we're in the software era, it's the, um, it's the gig economy. Um, companies you use the term digital transformation in a minute? I'm, I'm sorry, say again? You're going to use the term digital transformation. A digital transformation to me, by the way, is it's something that... I, Back in the day, I thought no one knows what it means, and therefore it's it's wrong. And I was thinking, actually, everyone defines for themselves what it means, and that's the most important thing about it. And, and to your point, everyone's struggling with this. Yeah, yeah. So you, you could kind of see that that buzzword coming a mile away, couldn't you? Mm. So yeah, uh, it's it's the need to transform, and um, every company needs to needs to be able to compete effectively in the digital era. Um, you know, I'm a student of Mick Kirsten, and uh, I love his book on on project to product. It's had a, a big influence on my career over the past year, a big influence on Scale Natural Framework, and it's making a big splash in the industry. I know that it's having a really big influence on the DevOps community as well, because I see him uh, as a keynote speaker at the big DevOps conferences. So this idea of moving from, from the old paradigm to the new paradigm, getting out of the more Tayloristic um, command and control style management and leadership patterns uh, into a new era of agile and adaptivity and automation where we can move fast 
moving away from um, projects that we that that are built on the premise of high certainty. If we if we plan it out the right way, if we get our WBSs and our resource loaded networks and our architecture and our designs and our pixel perfect uh, designs locked in and defined up front, we'll have a great chance of of uh, delivering 18 months, 24 months from now. That, that game is over. It's it's now about how fast can we experiment. So this is putting a lot of pressure on organizations of all sizes and ilks to find a way to retool their value streams so that they can compete at that speed with, uh, with that amount of quality. Because if they don't, they, they run the risk of the, the very real risk of being overtaken by the unicorns, the dominant players and the, and the other companies that uh, are able to transform. So I think it's that existential crisis that, that all companies are facing. It's being felt the, uh, in, the, in the boardroom, in the C-suite, and that's creating a lot of pressure on the technology organizations to help uh, step up and lead the way into a, into a new culture. So, I mean, how does that manifest itself in, in your experience? Is it that organizations literally are stymied? They don't know what's a rabbit in the headlight style, is knowing that they should do something and just can't move? Or is it that they're trying lots of things and they're just not? Um, for some reason, I'm reminded of uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader right now where uh, um, it's, uh, we'll come. We'll come back to that. But uh, there's a great. There's a great bit in that where you can't just superficially change. You have to change all the way down. Um, right. So uh, how how do you see it manifesting? What's the? Um, I don't see a whole lot of you know deer in the headlights. We're frozen and we don't know what to do. So work just stops. Uh, mm -hmm. You know you, you can't run a business that way. You've got to keep going, uh, and people are accountable for results. Right. So what I see, uh, what I see everywhere is more of a cargo cult mentality where, um, where we're, we're proceeding with what we know. We're going on instinct. We know that we need to deliver results and we're just doing our level best to figure it out as we go along. And uh, a, a lot of it is running on intuition, making, maybe making small adjustments here and there, but by and large, the, uh, the, the, the processes, the decision-making structures that are uh, that are driving the work are really from the old paradigm. So people are moving forward, but it's really that it's it's based on what we've always done. It's what we know. It's how we got here. But what people are starting to realize more and more is that the the, the processes and the practices and the tooling that got us here are not going to get us to where we need to be. That's that's brilliant. I'd say, and I'm going to, uh, in a moment, um, ask you a, a, a bit of a digression question. But I, but I want to come back to this, and I want to make sure that I, I've, I've captured it. it. Essentially, it's almost like uh, I mean, Edward de Bono wrote a book about uh, um, uh, Socratic thinking. Um, this kind of linear thing. So, that the way that most people make decisions is based on where they already are and they kind of just move forward from there so it's a kind of linear progression and the idea of changing you read a book called parallel thinking but you literally move from that set of tram rails to a completely different road system or uh, whatever yes. uh, it, it is really really hard for organizations so it's not a death march so much as it's just kind of continued trudging along in the hope that better will happen right 
Right. Exactly. It, it, um, the kind of change that we're talking about requires a mindset shift. So it's, uh -huh. it's very personal. It's very cultural. And uh, it's, it's a transformation that needs to happen within the minds of everybody involved. It's not something that, be, that can be decreed. Um, you know, it's, uh, I think we've all been through organizational change management efforts, right? The flavor, flavor of the day, transformation this, transformation that. It, it seems like there's always a transformation going on. Um, but in order to make transformation stick, it's really got to stick in the minds of the people whose behavior needs to change. And the first step in, in catalyzing that, that change is a mindset shift. People have to believe that a better way is needed. They have to believe that their behavior needs to change. And if their behavior changes, there will be a great result at the end. If there isn't that internal intrinsic motivation there, then um, you know, all bets are off. Or you, can, you will only be able to transform so far through your culture and then you'll hit a brick wall. I'm, I'm, I'm nodding and thinking literally uh, uh, again, how long have you got with the number of uh, transformation projects that I've kind of been watched okay. been party to be been within uh, every, you know, right down to well, we're going to change the logo because that'll, that'll do it all. Um, right. Uh, so as you speak, I'm, this is the minor digression, but I think it's important. Um, not everyone out there will know what uh, the SAFE framework is, uh, what Scale Agile does. Um, and uh, it's methodologically, here's a thing, here's, here's a set of ways of helping you get from, from the, the place you don't want to be to the place you do want to be. But the background question is, how, how did Scale Agile kind of uh, come about and how did the framework develop? Because it's not just a case of, well, here's the answer, just just start applying it and everything will be okay. Um, there's got to be more to it than that. Right, right. So um, the Scaled Agile was, was born out of the need to apply Agile practices, which are, um, which are proven to work. Uh, you know, we have, we have decades of evidence that Agile is just a great way of working. Um, it's not the only way. It may not be the only effective way, but it works. Um, and agile practices have been have been adopted, uh, you know, globally to for for great results. Uh -huh. um, the The issue has always been that agile is uh, agile is easier to do in smaller organizations. So startups never have a hard time going agile. Um, it's just easier. Fewer fewer dependencies. The the communication networks. Um, are, are smaller, the product lines are smaller, the, the architecture is less complex. Uh, we usually have just one or two products or product lines um, and smaller, uh, you know, smaller organizations mean uh, fewer processes, less bureaucracy and that kind of stuff, right? So agile, agile just works, but how do you apply those principles and practices effectively to very large organizations that have been around for decades, in some cases, more than a hundred years that are, they're very steeped in uh, regulation. They're high insurance environments. They've got processes and, and uh, layers and layers of people and bureaucracy. How do we how do we transform those organizations? How can they be agile? You know, just as fast as as the unicorns. So the scaled agile framework developed out of the the desire to um, to prove that large enterprises. Could go fast, just like small companies and startups could go fast. And that's that's, that's still the game we're playing today. 
uh, and we we literally haven't rehearsed this, but this is pretty much. Um, uh, I'm just. I, I think it, as, as I said to you before, it, I, don't, I don't like the term DevOps necessarily, but I, but how, how to scale software-based innovation uh, in in the enterprise. And so there's the word scale. It's about making it big, relative to the fact that you're working with with very. Um, I, I pause because I think a lot of the, it's a bit like using terms like legacy. A lot of the times when we talk about the enterprise, when we're uh, when we're kind of framing it, it comes across as well. All of those things are bad things, and I think some of those things are necessary things. So, for example, um, uh, it's it's necessary to be compliant out of the box. It's necessary to um, not to make. If you're an FMCG company, you can't just make a thousand changes. Um, to your supply chain, mm-hmm. it, it, it's not going to happen. The supply chain needs to stay exactly as it is, because otherwise it will all fall apart. So there are reasons why things have to stay the same. But then it's how you can uh, make change happen within an environment where there are good reasons why things change stay the right. same. Right. Good. So that's that's what you. So you're literally coming to this from the point of view that this podcast is coming to this, which which is very handy and helpful. I'm glad we've got you on. <laughs> so, I'm glad it worked out. Yeah, yeah, glad it worked out. So uh, and, and when so um, uh, where where do you start then? I mean, if you've got uh, does such a thing exist? Um, I've already said it's not about rabbit in the headlights kind of thing. If you've got an enterprise that's um, ready to start looking at the kinds of things that you guys do um what do they have they already been through uh, have they hit the rails in, in terms of how far doing things at an initiative level can work or are they um uh, is it coming top down is it coming bottom up is it uh, largely coming from within a team how, how do you tend to engage and I'm, I'm thinking of this not from the point of view of um you as an organization, but what does the enterprise look like when it's feeling ready to start to start becoming more agile and, and uh, has it already had some aha moments? I don't know. Yeah, it, interesting question. Um, you know, I think everybody or, or every uh, every application or implementation of SAFE looks a little bit different. Mm-hmm. The the framework is the framework. And, you know, we have an implementation roadmap that represents uh, a very, very common implementation pattern, you know, sort of stepwise, first do this and then train these people and then do this and, you know, set up an agile release train and then launch and, and, and iterate. Um, so we have a defined recommended path to start. Um, and many, many of our customers proceed that way. But, you know, every implementation is different because every, every culture, every context it's different. We're, we're dealing with people and when we're dealing with uh, different enterprises with different strategic objectives. But I think the one thing that's common among all of them is they, they realize that they need to change. They need, they need to be adaptive and agile um, all across the organization, not just the, the technology ranks, but now into the business too. So how do we do, how do we do agile HR? How do we do agile compliance and change management, agile finance? And uh, how, how can we help our C-suite uh, think in more agile and lean terms, you know, smaller batches and, and have a, more of an appetite for experimentation and risk-taking, you know, the kinds of things that, 
that drive the behavior of um, you know, some of the predominant companies today, like Amazon and Netflix and, and Google, you know, very experimental in nature and innovative. How can we, um, how can we start to move in that direction? So I, I think the goals that everyone is looking for are the same, but where it starts in the organization um, tends to vary, but um, it usually starts with, you know, somebody getting an itch, whether okay. it's, whether it's an executive or a senior leader, or it could be a practitioner or a manager somewhere, or uh, somebody who's got a, a vision for a different way of doing things. Uh, and who thinks, man, my team could be so much better, so much faster, so much more effective if we were to do this, or my department could be so much better, or my IT organization, my division, my business unit, or my entire company could be so much better if we were to do things differently. Mm-hmm. Those champions come from um, from all ranks and all corners of the enterprise. And it, it really just, um, it, it starts with a, a single spark usually. And then that spark gets fanned and, uh, you know, turns, in, turns into a little, a little flame somewhere in the organization. And uh, it, usually the path that folks take is, um, when they, when they get that itch, they'll go looking for, um, tools that can scratch that itch and, you know, scale that is just one tool of many. So, uh, they usually go shopping and they'll, they'll try some things out. A lot of times they'll try it internally. Um, most often there are folks within an organization who have, who have done agile before, or who have done DevOps before, or who have experienced, uh, lean thinking environments before. And they'll kind of lead the way. Um, what we see very often is that w- when we get involved, there are there are pockets of agility, pockets of agile teams, pockets of DevOps, and pockets of leanness within the organization that are working effectively. Uh, then now those teams just need help scaling those those benefits to the larger enterprise. Okay, that's that's fair enough. So so it's highly likely and there's no such thing as a standard organization let's let's say that for the record but it's highly likely that if you've got a 50,000 person organization or a 20,000 person organization or even you know a 5,000 person organization somewhere in that place there will be people that are already thinking doing stuff in a much better way and Often is it, I'm imagine I'm feeling it's a bit like embers in a fire. It's about how to gather those bits of ember together and and recognize that that's where the fire the future fires are going to come from, right? And and, and how to get them to kind of uh, make more fire, uh, or all, all, all in one all in one go, right? Yeah, and so usually what we do is uh, that makes sense. We, yes, absolutely. So um, usually what what happens is. We identify those people um, or they come to us and we help them get their organizations to what we call a tipping point, which is readiness for safe, readiness for something new and ready, ready to commit to the transformation. And uh, the people we work, work with in achieving that tipping point, uh, you know, kind of vary from, from organization to organization and implementation to implementation, but usually it's, uh, it ends up being somewhere within sort of the, uh, the, the, the mid to senior leadership ranks in the organization. Uh-huh. So it doesn't necessarily have to have the board on top of things from day one. Right. It usually does not. Right. That's, that's, that's really useful. Um, and 
there's I, I'm just thinking this through. So so there's going to be a connect. There's going to be a kind of um, not a sequence of activities, but a, a kind of evolution from getting that um, readiness to commit, getting that tipping point kind of happening, and then building on that. I'm now my head's full of analogies. It's gone from embers to flywheels. I'm not quite sure how these things right. map onto each other, but uh, so as the flywheel starts spinning up, then um, it's going to generate information. It's going to generate um, uh, success stories. Um, mm -hmm. It's going to generate the interest that then will feed up into the board, I imagine. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Or do the board, do the board ever care? I mean, do they just want to carry on the way they always were, or is there a point at which, no, the the whole organization goes, yeah, okay, we're all up for this. Uh, the the board the board cares about results. Mm -hmm. So um, there are where we where we start is usually with the people who uh, who need a new way of working because the existing way of working just isn't cutting it. Uh, we're uh, because of our processes, because of our project-based mentality, because of how we have our teams organized, and because of how we're managing the portfolio and the budgets and, and how we work managing uh, our, our software delivery lifecycle, it's just not cutting it and we're not able to make good on our, on our business commitments, right? It usually starts with a recognition that um, the technology delivery engine is not serving the business and our customers well, so we need a new way of working. A new set of practices. So the people who who are responsible for those practices, the the practitioners, the managers, um, the people who do the work, um, get trained in a new way of doing things. It's you know based on based on agile principles, and then you know, that that's kind of the easy part. And uh, then we reach another point where there, there needs to be more of a, an executive or senior leadership tipping point where we have, you know, we have this, this hundred or 200 people in the organization doing things a new way and it's working. We're seeing results there and their customers are happy. Now, how do we spread this across the entire enterprise? Um, that sort of, that sort of transformation, that sort of scaling requires more senior management approval and buy-in because budgets are involved. And you know, training is not free, and this is organizational change management, which which is which can be disruptive and has an impact on uh, on the organization. Mm. So at that level, in order to scale, um, you need you need buy-in and support from from higher levels of the organization. And those people always ask the question: All right, if we're going to do this, what can I expect as a result? So it's the it's the senior leaders, the executives, and the board members in the C-suite um, who will do this if there are tangible business results attached to it. So somewhere along the way, you've got to demonstrate that um, this new way of working is producing tangible business, business results that are having an impact in the marketplace. I'm just thinking of uh, my own experience. Um, I'm thinking specifically about government now um, because that, that it was a campus environment. I mean, the NHS is, is similar uh, over here and, and um, uh, those kinds of environments where it, it, it's multiple similar departments, but operating in isolation. And it was almost like you could look out over the landscape of all these different departments and some would be working in a completely different way to others. You know, they, they'd be very agile. They'd be very 
forward thinking and forward and they'd be making loads of progress uh, and others would still be kind of stuck in almost medieval uh, principles and practices uh, and what it seemed to come down to was uh, I mean this is an obvious thing to say but if you had a really strong leader in any of those little mini pyramids of uh, departmental structure mm -hmm. um, they could manage their part of the business in a really good way right. so very strong leadership at, as you say, mid-senior level would, would, would work brilliantly. Uh, but then depending on the next level of leadership up, uh, if that wasn't strong enough, then that would be that would be the kind of the cutoff as to whether it was these fiefdoms doing things right or whether the whole of the organization was doing things right. Right. Yep. And uh Many of our customers are very large enterprises with very large solutions uh, that are where they've got many, many teams, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of people who need to work together in order to get a product or a solution out the door. Very complex. And some of these, some of these solutions are cyber physical systems or uh, you know, in highly integrated systems, they could be big complex ERPs, they could even be uh, satellite systems or combines, tractors, airplanes, cars. Um, I love so, combine harvesters. The most, aren't they great? Have you ever driven <laughs> one? No, I have not. I, I, I live in the countryside, but that that that's something I suddenly really want to do. What, but I think they're the, some of the most advanced vehicles in the world now. In, in They're terms amazing. of sensors, and I mean, it's a whole fac factory. It's a manufacturing plant on wheels, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So th th those things are amazing. They're they're super complex. Um, but more and more, the the value proposition of those kinds of things is in the software that's embedded. Mm. Just like it, most of the the value of the Tesla, and one of the reasons why the Tesla Model Three is the the best selling, um, you know, mid sized luxury car in the world right now, is because of the intelligence built in through the software and the over the air updates and those kinds of things, right? Mm -hmm. Very cool technology, but also very useful and convenient. So it's, uh, you know, software is eating the world now and software is being integrated into, into more physical systems and into the manufacturing process, which is creating more complex solutions. And it's bringing more and more people from the enterprise together into the value stream, needing to cooperate and manage the work effectively um, for beginning to end. So if we have, uh, you know, 10,000 people, internal people, different teams, engineering teams and software-based teams, firmware teams, um, and everybody else supporting them, plus some outside suppliers who supply parts that need to get integrated into the, the finished product um, in order to get the solution out the door and into market quickly so that we can realize the, the revenue and compete and uh, be profitable and all of that good stuff. I right? capitalize on the market opportunity to get this thing out the door and, and into our customers' hands in the right place at the right time. That requires a whole lot of coordination and we have to do it faster than ever. If we have, you know, two teams in there, you know, 50 people, maybe a hundred people, that's a lot more than two teams, by the way, in an agile world. But if we have just pockets of, of teams among that ecosystem that are, that are doing agile and they're going really fast and doing things like DevOps and continuous integration, continuous delivery and, and really slamming it out, but everybody else is not. The benefits of being agile and fast are going to be seen only at that team level. Um, it's and that can cause all kinds of friction 
as, as I'm not sure you're aware of. You know, and, and reduce lead, lead times from end to end. Right. So, uh, right. So, so that carry on. Uh, but uh, I'm good. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, because uh, we're, we're going to be running out of time. I mean, you said how long have I got? Um, uh, as long as the listener wants to carry on listening. So I hope you're still listening, guys out there. Uh, and uh, I'm thinking, right, I've got it. I'm bought into this. I want to do this stuff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'm already started uh, and I've, I'm pulling the embers together. I'm, I'm getting that fly, flywheel spinning up. Uh, when you're with those organizations, I, I've got two questions for you. Uh, and the, the second one's a kind of final question. Uh, so the, the first question is what kinds of, what does start to make it nearly work and then not work? So what kinds of growing pains do you get? Now, I may have just invented a term, um, so bear with me. I've got to get this out of my system while it's in my head, which is agile in name only. Um, so organizations uh, that, I, that I've seen that um, they think they're doing it all right, but still, it, it, it's like the old adage: real programmers can write Fortran in any language. Um, so yes. they, they they can they can still be doing two year cycles, even though they've they're doing them in sprints, for example. Yeah, uh, could be one challenge. But what, what what do you see as the the growing pain issues? And then let's go from there and and just have a bit of a wrap up in terms of okay, this is this is how to get from A to B. Okay, great, great. So. Uh, Yes, growing pains out there, and and um, and, and the the good and bad, good news, bad news of <laughs> agile adoption. Good news is it's pretty easy to do, and teams in general want to do it. If we talk about things like moving faster, um, decentralized decision making, we're going to do work in smaller batches so that we can get more work done. And we're going to prioritize ruthlessly so that we're always working on the highest value things um, at any given time. And we're going to we're going to impose work and process limits, right? So that we don't all get burned out. We can work on the most valuable stuff and decentralized decision making to the point where now the the development teams have most of the control over the the design and and the development of the product, right? Um, so in my experience, teams want that kind of empowerment. And uh, if you give them the space to create and to innovate, they will adopt these new practices, they will take it seriously, and they will fly. Uh, so adopting, adopting the practices, adopting the patterns, and developing the muscle, and becoming agile and being agile is fairly easy to do. It, it, it happens pretty quickly within Hooray. But then growing pains, right? Growing pains start to set in when or start to be very noticeable when you see a lot of people doing agile they're, uh, they're, they're holding the ceremonies, they've got the backlogs, they're doing their refinement sessions, they're, uh, they're holding their demos and their retrospectives. And it starts to seem very routine. It's almost like uh, you, you th you know that you've reached a, a level of plateauing or growing pains when you see a lot of agile happening, but the results have started to wane. And I think this represents a, a disconnect in the minds of the people who are doing agile. They focus more on the practices than the outcomes. And they can sort of lose sight of why we're doing agile in the first place. It's to 
Uh, it's to delight customers. It's to have an impact on the business. It's to, um, it's to show our customers that we can do more with less and we can innovate faster and we can have more of an impact in the market. So I see that as a pretty major growing pain where we're, we're doing agile, it sticks pretty well, but then we're not seeing the, the compelling business results that, uh, that were either promised or we're not really reaching our full potential with being an agile organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and uh, very interestingly, um, uh, on a, a webinar I was doing last year, it was uh, with Walmart. And that was one of the things that it literally showed the graph of uh, results and it kind of went off like a rocket. And then it kind of, again, it was a bit of a decay curve. It tailed and tailed and then it hit really hit the ruts because uh, uh, the desire went, went away when the results weren't there. And then that's when the real work started, he, he found right. to actually put it. So we've got a kind of fad and then we've got the cultural change. Yeah. And this is where I love to uh, bring DevOps into the conversation, which might be a good place for it here. So if, if you would allow awesome. me, I'd, I'd love to circle back to DevOps because we started with, with DevOps and I think um, introducing DevOps at this point in the transformation process be very, very beneficial to people. Um, it was to me. So I became a, a believer in DevOps at this point of it in a transformation. I was, um, I was in a position as a, you know, I was VP of something at a large financial institution and I was leading an enterprise-wide agile transformation. And we had done this, we'd, we'd adopted safe. So I started as a safe customer. I, you know, very skeptical at first and we tried it out and, and, uh, you know, went slowly and then, and then eventually fully bought into it. And we saw really, really great results. Um, mm-hmm. in about nine months, you know, uh, we, we trained about 350 people across the organization, many members of the business included, and we were doing agile and it was spreading. And, um, if you looked around the organization, it, it, uh, it was very obvious that we had transformed. You know, there were, there were sticky notes up on the walls and there were big posters and big visual information radiators, um, you know, plastered up in the hallways and it, it just looked like a different environment, right? So, so you could really tell that, that something had taken root. Um, so the practices were being adopted and software was being developed faster, but we weren't really seeing the uh, the benefits on the business side. We would ask our customers if they, if they noticed a difference and they would say, well, you know, we walk through the halls and we see, we see a lot of arts and crafts up on the walls and it looks like you guys are doing some things differently, but you know, we're not really seeing a faster time to market or, or a higher degree of quality. Um, you know, we're really not competing more effectively in the marketplace. So, you know, is there anything else you can do? That's when we realized that we had reached a plateau and we, we were experiencing some growing pains and needed something else. That's when we brought in DevOps. And as soon as we brought in more of a DevOps component um, to help us with that last mile of delivery, um, you know, the, the development teams were getting software developed faster, but we still needed to get through our, our many, many stages of integration and testing and retesting and regression and, and you know, system testing and end testing and user acceptance testing and then deployment staging, all of that other stuff right into production. And we needed to streamline that so that we could really demonstrate that we could get um, to market faster. When we did that, um, we brought in 
those more of a DevOps mindset and some of those practices and just a little bit of tooling. And within the span of just a couple months, we were able to demonstrate that we could, we could go from 18 hour deployments to five minute deployments. And that literally changed the game for everybody. From that point on, we were a different organization and we were leveraging DevOps to, 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 um, deliver benefits that were noticed by the business and by the customers. And from that point on, we were measuring gains, not in percentages, but in orders of magnitude. Wow. Um, I'm deliberately saying wow there, because that's kind of um, <clears throat> having spoken to it. I, I could make the following hypothesis, which is the way to do DevOps properly is as follows. The first is to get your head around uh, doing Agile become more lean, essentially hit this rail, <laughs> hit this yeah, issue, right. and then you're in a perfect place to start bringing in and reaping the rewards of DevOps uh, because you've already made the cultural shifts, but you're facing the challenges that are caused by those cultural shifts. And now, so uh, it's time to bring in better automation, better measurement, better collaboration, et cetera, all those, all those good pieces of DevOps. And then they don't exist in isolation. They exist a, a building on a foundation of Agile. Which they is absolutely a really powerful uh, potential uh, opportunity. Exactly, agile and DevOps better together. They uh, reinforce uh, each other. How, how very corporate! <laughs> 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 that that took that took me back. So, uh, I mean, is is that your final word? I mean, is that kind of uh, this is? So, if I was to say, let's wrap up and let's summarize, um, would, would that be? what you would suggest to any organization that's that's out there that's looking to to do this um, transformation, make this, uh, to your point, to address this existential crisis of business agility? Uh, yeah, but let me add just another little bit. Um, and uh, this is inspired by some things that you've said along the way about the, the terminology itself, right? You've said that you don't necessarily like the term DevOps. You don't necessarily mm -hmm. like the term uh, you, know, you know other terms, and, and I feel exactly the same way. In fact, I uh, I gave a talk at our uh, um, at our well, I can't remember which which conference it was, <laughs> but it might have been our our safe summit here in San Diego um, uh -huh. last last fall. But I was talking about sort of the evolution of DevOps. You know, how do how do you know you've reached a, a good stopping point with DevOps and what's sort of the, 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 the sit, crawl, walk, run, fly evolution of a DevOps capability within the organization. And I started with, you know, you, you know, you're at stage one when you don't even know what DevOps means. And then you kind of proceed through these stages. and yeah, you get DevOps and then you're doing DevOps and then you're really, you're really flying with DevOps and you're sort of redefining what DevOps means. And then the last stage is you've dropped the term altogether and you no longer call it DevOps. It's just the way you are. It's built into your DNA. It's in the culture. You don't need a name for it. It's just, it's just what you do. Uh -huh. And so I think we, we apply terms to things, DevOps, continuous delivery, CI, CD, Agile, Scrum, these things as, as labels for ways of working and, and uh, more efficient ways of getting work done. But it's not so much about the terminology. It's not so much about following a, a specific set of practices. It's finding what works with your culture, doing that very effectively, building or building it organically within your culture, uh, and then 
cultivating it, making it part of your DNA in the culture. So uh, definitely start with agile practices, do DevOps, adopt these practices. They work. I love DevOps because it's one of the quickest routes I've seen from going from, you know, zero to lightning fast in a very, very short amount of time. It really is a game changer. So start to adopt these practices, but don't do it in isolation. Have more of a system view. Make sure that you're optimizing the, the value stream from end to end and not just one piece of the value stream at a time, but always, always be centered on why you're doing this in the first place and what you need to do to really ingrain these practices and this mindset in your culture. And when you're doing it that way, it's less about doing DevOps and more about just doing continuous delivery and um, being an agile organization or, or, or doing the best you can to enable the uh, you know, competitive advantage and the, the health of your business. Well, that re really does bring us full circle, doesn't it? So it, it, it's kind of the, the huge difference between getting there and, and just being there uh, in, in terms of, of all of these practices where the, the labels just drop away and, and you just wonder why everyone's talking about it. <laughs> right. Why do right. we even need a term? It's just what we do. So. It's just what we do. Well, well, that that's absolutely fantastic. So thank you so much, Mark, uh, for, for joining me on, on this podcast. I, I, often say I've learned a lot, uh, but in, uh, and it's usually true. And in this case, it, it absolutely is true that I've, that I've had a couple of minor epiphanies of my own, uh, as you've been talking. So, so thank you so much, uh, for, for joining me on, on this podcast. And I look forward to catching up with you again. Thanks for having me on, John. It was a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in DevOps, please check out the other ones. Scaling DevOps for the Enterprise is the focus of a recent report John wrote for GigaOM Research. To find out more about how digital transformation is evolving, download the single report or subscribe to GigaOM Research for future forward advice on IT operations and business strategies.